Please turn to James chapter 2. It's been interesting these last couple of weeks talking about the things that we've talked about from the book of James as it pertains to what we see happening around us right now. And um, I hope that it was instructive and helpful, kind of connecting the dots. Uh, today, we're going to go on a little bit different track as we tackle the last two verses in this section. Um, you know, it's hilarious when I begin a series, I kind of think that there's an outline like the one that you have, and it turned into three weeks. But that's, that's the beauty of God's Word. There's much there, and it's very rich, and it's very deep. But um, last week, we investigated James 2, 5 through 11. I'd just like to read that again to you real quickly to just refresh your memory. Listen, my bro- uh, beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, he also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit murder or commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Very, very important, the last portion there I didn't really touch on because we were focusing on some other areas uh, that I felt were more pertinent to our context that we're in today. But that last part about if you've broken one, you've broken them all, man, is that convicting. And that's an excellent piece of Scripture to read to somebody that you're witnessing to that's maybe self-righteous. Um, they go to church every Sunday, whatever church that might be, and um, they're, they're a good family person. Uh, their marriage is doing okay. They, they have a job and they have a salary and everything's going fine and they feel that they're pretty good. That's when you bring to bear the law on those folks and, and you, you ask them if they've ever lied or you can go anywhere you want there. Have you ever done this? Have you ever stolen anything? And if they've broken the law in one place, Scripture says they've broken it, the whole law. And so they stand condemned before God. And um, yeah, sometimes you have to do that when you're witnessing the people. But I just want to um, highlight again the things that we went over because it was very succinct. Uh, Last week we talked about uh, three inconsistencies uh, when it comes to the sin of partiality. Three inconsistencies, and I'll review these very rapidly and we'll get into the new text. The character and nature of God. First, to be partial, whether to the rich or to the poor, to be partial is inconsistent with the character and nature of God. And, and you know, in this text of Scripture, there, the partiality cuts both ways. You see, because we think of being partial only from the standpoint of um, like looking at the rich and being partial to them, giving them a nicer seat or giving them more respect or whatever. But when you're despising the poor, you're being partial towards them as well. It's just in a negative sense. It's not in alignment with truth. And so keep that in mind because it cuts both ways. The character and nature of God, God is impartial. And this is a good thing for us. God is impartial. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality. He does not show partiality. And I had you go to Leviticus chapter 19, 
And we looked at two verses, 14 and 15. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, because I am Yahweh. You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Notice it doesn't say we're not to judge. You have to be discerning, and you're allowed to be discerning, but it says you need to do it fairly, justly, and the only way we can do that is by using this as our basis of judgment. Even in the New Testament, it says be careful how you judge. Make sure you're judging according to the truth of God's word. Um, judgment has kind of fallen on hard times now. We say, don't be judgy, <laughs> and kind of laugh about it, you know. But honestly, we do have to be discerning. So thus far, we've just learned that you're not to be partial to the poor. They don't get extra points because they're poor. You're to be just. And you should not defer to the great, which is what it's very easy to do. They get no more respect or deference just because they have money and wealth and power. And either way would be showing partiality. And this is not the way that God judges. This is not just. It's not fair either to the poor or to the rich. Both are to be treated the same when it comes to the word of God and it comes to the truth. So in summary, God's eye is on the poor with concern and compassion. But this doesn't mean, and this is important, it doesn't distinguish or separate out or prefer the poor as an oppressed group that now lay claim to a status of victimhood and demand restitution. And that's exactly what's happening, isn't it? That, that's, that's not just. It's not fair. Jesus Christ said to his disciples, the poor you will have with you always. It's... It's the way of the world. Not everybody is rich. Not everybody is poor. And who chose you to be, uh, to be born in America? Who chose the Taliabo to be born in Taliabo? How unfair! Those people wear loincloths, and they don't have shirts to wear, and they're barefoot. Careful. <laughs> Careful. So, we see that it would be inconsistent with character and nature of God and God is not partial. That's the first inconsistently inconsistency. James identified the poor as the ones chosen of God to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom promised to those who love him. Now, you understand that James is talking in the context of the assembly. He says when somebody comes into your assembly, okay, comes into your church, and they're rich, you prefer them over the poor, and you tell the poor to sit down here at your footstool. So you're talking about in a church setting. But he does go on to say that the poor were the ones chosen of God uh, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, whereas the rich were the ones dragging the poor to the courts and the ones that were taking and blaspheming that fair name which you worship. And so we're, we've got a dichotomy here between rich and poor, but we also have a dichotomy between those who believe and those who uh, blaspheme the name. And it wasn't all the rich, but James was trying to make a point. It's much easier to drag people to court and defame the name, the fair name of Jesus Christ our Lord, when you're rich and powerful. Because you're feeling your oats, you've got power, you've got sway, you've got money, and you think you can do that. The poor are less prone to do that, but they too can do the same thing. They too can defame the name of Jesus Christ. So, just keep that in mind. That first one is inconsistent with the character and nature of God. Secondly, there is an inconsistency with, with their faith, James said. It's contrary to the name by which they had been called. See verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So these are believers he's talking to. And he says, you've done contrary to what your faith demands of you uh, in the fact that you are the ones who uh, call on that name. 
in strong contradiction, he challenges his readers and says, you, on the other hand, rather than acting consistently, uh, consistently with your calling, are following the lead of God. You're not following the lead of God, your father, and you've behaved differently toward the poor. Whereas the rich, is it not them? Do they not? And he lays out that whole thing. Their typical behavior of the unredeemed rich is that they are not God-fearers. It's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to come into the kingdom. Why did Jesus say that? Why did he teach that? Because when you have riches, you have power, and when you have power and riches, you don't have need. It's why the gospel is falling on dull ears in all of our affluence here in the United States of America and many Western nations. And yet, when you go overseas to what used to be called third world countries or poorer countries, lesser developed nations would be the you know, acceptable language today, uh, with people in them that, that have not yet become literate, instead of calling them illiterate, because that would be not acceptable. <sighs> All the word games, I get weary. But the truth of the matter is, those people know what it's like to be in need. They know what it's like to stand in a long line just to get some bread. Okay? And so when you preach the gospel to them, they seemingly are more open and more receptive to the gospel. I know the Taliabo were. But here, it's almost like a steak is looked down upon. I want lobster. <laughs> so sad. And, and that's what James was saying, is that it's inconsistent with your faith when you, when you lift up these rich people that, that treat you so poorly. James is challenging the believers by showing them how inconsistent their partiality towards the rich and against the poor is with their very faith, the fair name by which you have been called. It's inconsistent. Thirdly, inconsistent. Partiality is inconsistent with the royal law. And he says, you're sinning. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. If you, however, are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself, and you're doing well. We see the perfect law over in James 1.25, and it's a term that I said is used to describe the Word of God in its completeness. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets and that's Jesus speaking in Matthew 22. You see, every time we see law, don't just think of the Ten Commandments. Don't just think of the Mosaic Law. Understand the context in which it's being used. It's called the perfect law. It's called the whole law. It's called the law of liberty. And each context has a different nuance to it. You've got to be good uh, discerners and, and uh, translators of the word of God. You can't just take one word law and say it means the same every place you see it. James used the royal law here as referring to the essence, the sum, the substance of the complete word of God. And James chose an example of how this royal law is evidenced by quoting Leviticus 19.18. We're back in Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is from Leviticus 19, where James, or where um, Moses was writing about partiality. Very interesting. He possibly did so because his mind was all taken up with sin and partiality. And the entire section of Leviticus 19, 15 through 18 shows God's teaching on the interpersonal relationships and how they were to guard against partiality toward the poor and rich, both of them, deferring, the rich, deferring to the rich or, or looking down on the poor. Instead, they were to judge their neighbor fairly, and that would be loving them as themselves. So summary of that portion that we just looked at, James 9 says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. You are a transgressor. We don't call sin, sin anymore in our lives. The longer we've been believers, the less we sin. I mean, it's supposed to be true, but is it true? Or have we just forgot that we're sinners too? That sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for us. We will not be judged for it. Keep that in mind as we go into the rest of the sermon. But the fact of the matter is, we are still to agree with God when we commit sin. And how, 
How many times do you get angry and just call it frustration or stress instead of, I was angry and anger is sin? I could go on to a whole list. I'm not going to go there because that's not the content of the sermon today. It's better if you love your neighbor as yourself, fulfill the royal law, James said, because then you will be doing well. But by your partiality, he said, you're being inconsistent with the royal law. You're going contrary to the royal law, and you're committing sin, and you've become a transgressor. So we've looked at James 2, 1 through 4, and we've seen the rebuke against partiality. And then we turn to 5 through 11, which I just reviewed, and we saw the regrettable results of partiality in their treatment of the poor and actually the rich as well. And now today, I'd like to finish the section in James and look at the final two verses, 12 and 13, and I'd like to answer the question that might come to mind when reading it. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. Huh? Are Christians to be judged? And as I do, we'll cover the main portion of those two verses. So let me read these verses, and then let's open with a word of prayer. James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Thank you so very, very much, Lord, for your word and for how practical it is and how up-to-date and just contemporary. Right here where we sit right now, I love your word. I love how you guide and direct us. It is our guide. It is our direction that we're to walk as Christians. And Father, help us to open our hearts to be convicted. Lord, we are not above sinning. We are not above transgressing what we know to be true. And help us to be uh, humble enough to admit it when we do. And thank you for your forgiveness that we have found if we're believers in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, having all our sins forgiven. Thank you, Lord. But help us not to um, put off as though we don't sin anymore. Lord, we sin every day. And we thank you that we have forgiveness and we can continue to grow in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the requirement of impartiality, verses 12 and 13. It starts off with a command. So speak and so act. Both of those are in the imperative. That means it's a command. It's not just a good idea. And it makes what he's saying more than an option for his readers, for the listeners. Rather than a mere suggestion, James is defining Christian duty once again. He does it all the way through. So get used to it. He tells us what we're supposed to be doing as believers. We're to behave in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So speak. And so act. The adverb so points to so much more than the content of speech and the actual outworking of the behavior, the action. That little so goes more to the motivation behind the speech and the action. James put this command in the present tense. Sorry to get into grammar with you, but this stuff's really important. It really helps us to understand what James was saying. He didn't have to do this. I mean, the the apostles, the disciples, they didn't get up and say, and this is an imperative. They just understood it innately because it was their language. It was the Greek language. We don't oftentimes. We lose sight of it. So I throw these things out not to show you that I'm smart because you can do the same thing by going to Blue Letter Bible, okay? So it's not a biggie. But it's helpful to understand. So the command is in the present tense, which means that it was expected of them to habitually and continually practice this duty. This behavior, so as to speak and so as to act, that behavior was to be a lifestyle. It was to mark their lives. It wasn't just a one-off when you felt holy or especially blessed by a song, so you do something nice or you say something nice. That's not biblical Christianity. 
Christianity, biblical Christianity, Christianity 101, is your whole life has been dedicated to God. You have yielded yourself a living sacrifice to do whatever God wants you to do because he is now your Lord and master. You are no longer the Lord and master of your own life. That is not some kind of radical Christianity that only missionaries and pastors have. That's supposed to be all of us, all of us. The word as, this little word introduces what motivation is behind the speech and action should be. The speech and actions should be motivated by the ruling thought that they would be those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We all will be judged by the law of liberty. Okay? Now, there are other judgments. There are judgments for the unregenerate, those who do not believe. That comes at the end of the millennium. That comes right before God recreates the heavens and the earth and creates a new heaven and a new earth in which believers will live for eternity in the presence of God. Prior to that, at the end of the 1,000-year reign of God, there is something called the white throne judgment. That is where every believer from all time, Genesis all the way through to that time, whenever that comes, that's when unbelievers are going to be judged. And that's a judgment for condemnation. It is a judgment of salvation. The judgment we're going to be talking about today has nothing to do with those things. That's already been settled at the cross. Thank God. Hallelujah. So those who will be judged by the law of liberty are the believers that James was talking to. He speaks here, it's a future judgment, and it will be experienced by genuine believers, and the basis for the judgment of the believer is the law of liberty. Now, don't think Mosaic law again. Think of what does the law of liberty mean? That is simply put, the gospel. The law of liberty is the gospel. The believer will be judged on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness, and that righteousness frees the believer from the law of bondage, the Mosaic law, that condemns, and it judges them under the redeeming law of liberty. We are free, right? Free indeed. As we discovered in James 1.25, where James referred to this law as a perfect law of liberty, there I identified the law of liberty as the word of God, and it was perfect because it's a reflection of what the word of God is. It's inerrant in all of it. It's content. It's sufficient and utterly comprehensive. Just read Psalm 19, 7 through 9. As law, it's also authoritative. It does bring authority to our lives. And what it says is binding upon us to perform, but not binding in the sense of slavery. It's not slavery. For it brings with it liberty. It's the law of liberty. John 8, 31 and 32 teaches that whoever abides in his word will know the truth, and the truth will make them what? Free. That's liberty. It's the law of liberty. In verses 34 and 36, you see that sin, that's in John chapter 8, 34 and 36, you see sin as being slavery and bondage, but the Son is able to make us free. James focused on its redemptive power in freeing believers from bondage to sin and then freeing them to something. So we're not just free, completely automatically free. We are free from the bondage of sin, but we are free to obey the law of liberty. There's liberty in the commands of God. John 5.3 explains that the commands of God are not burdensome. But see, to an unbeliever, the Ten Commandments are extremely restrictive. Oh, what do you mean? I can't lie? I can't steal? I can't commit adultery? I mean, that's all the stuff they do. That's like telling me not to live for the unbeliever. Uh, very few would be bold enough to actually admit that, but they're thinking that when you're talking to them. How restrictive. Oh, you're a churchgoer? You're Jesus Believer, Bible believer, oh my gosh, how restrictive is that? No, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not restrictive. It's more liberty than they could ever even imagine in their unsaved state. It allows us to serve God, not out of fear or 
mere sense of duty, obligation, but out of gratitude and love. Out of gratitude and love. As the believer submits himself to this transforming power of the law of liberty, this law of liberty works in the life of the believer a disposition and ability to do God's will joyfully. I don't get up here every Sunday and go, oh, darn, i got to preach again. Oh, my gosh. Every week i got to preach. Lord, help me. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to sit under that. I look forward to preaching to you every Sunday. And I pray that I can bring it to at least one. I pray that often. Lord, just let one person get something out of this, you know? But I love what I do. I love being a preacher. I love being a pastor. I love being a missionary. I love being a believer. I love being free. Because I still remember what it was like to be under bondage to sin. Talk about bondage. It was bondage indeed. You see, we have the motivation and the power to serve the Lord with our whole life. That's the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. That's why 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, where it talks about wood, hay, and stubble, precious stones and jewels and things like that, at the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll talk about in a moment. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, it makes it clear that those believers who fail to allow, that's important, fail to allow the indwelling spirit to work these, this love-prompted change into their lives, they'll find the reality of judgment seat a solemn experience indeed. It's not one of judgment in the sense of condemnation or salvation, but it can be solemn if you have not allowed the Spirit of God to work freely in your life, if you've quenched the Spirit of God in your life. Because every believer has been freed to follow Christ and obey the Scriptures. None of us do it perfectly. None of us. Most of us aren't even close, okay? But there should be a progressive transformation that's taking part in your life so that you are changing year to year to year. And you're growing in your faithful following that liberty of, of uh, the law of liberty. So, James does say in verse 12 of James 2 where we just were, so speak and act as those who are to be judged. He does say that there's a judgment. Wait, believers are judged? Yeah, yeah. Now, this is important stuff, and I'm going to teach you the doctrine of the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ, where there are rewards and there is loss, okay? So tighten up your seat belts and hang on, because we're going to study this doctrine together. According to 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans 14, there is judgment for every believer. I'll read those two verses for you. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Over in Romans 14.10, Paul wrote, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? Well, we're kind of getting close there to judging, right? Judging. Why do you despise your brother? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the answer to the question, will believers face judgment, the answer is categorically yes. The verses both say all will experience this judgment. Maybe a better question is not so much will believers face judgment, but how will the Christian be judged? Because Romans 8.1, which is a verse that if I was into tattoos, I'd have a tattoo with that verse, and it would say, right across my forehead actually, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Talk about freedom. There is therefore now no, no condemnation. So when Jesus Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished, 
And if I am a believer, I am in Christ, there is no condemnation for me. So you've got to take that text and weigh it against this judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment of condemnation. It's not a judgment about salvation. It's a judgment that has a different character to it. But it is a judgment. All who are in Christ will face this judgment. The word for judgment here in verse 2 and above is a Greek word, bima. In ancient times, a bima was a raised platform or a step that was used in athletic or political arenas. You have instances where rulers or judges would ascend to the bema seat and they'd render a decision on a legal case. Pilate judged Jesus from his bema seat. And in athletic events, the authority figure would be elevated to a bema to judge the competition and award the awards to winners in the competition. Now, in the scripture, when it references the bema seat of Christ, it's talking about believers standing before the bema seat of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you, let's say, six little points about this bema seat. You can write these down. Number one, Jesus is the judge. That's good news for us as believers. It's good news. Jesus is the judge who presides over his bema. You find that in 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Romans 14.10. And it is called the judgment seat of Christ. Both of those texts said you will stand before, all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Very important phrase, the judgment seat of Christ. Number two, those being judged are believers. The all refers to believers. Number three, the emphasis at the bema is rewards, not salvation, not condemnation. The emphasis is rewards. And believe you me, there will be many rewards, many rewards. But, number four, there's also loss. There's also loss. The loss is the realization of lost opportunities for Christ while in the body. It's those times that you say, ah, I just don't want to. You might not even vocalize it or articulate it, maybe not even in your thinking, but you turn down an opportunity that the Spirit of God is urging you to participate in, possibly witnessing, possibly doing something at church, possibly doing something nice for your family, <laughs> whatever. It's, if I might lapse for a minute to Ephesians chapter 2, it's those good works which God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. Look at verse 2. Excuse me, uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We believers are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? To just sit around and have a good time because our sins are forgiven, fire insurance, we're not going to hell, hallelujah, let's party have a lot of potlucks and a lot of fellowship time, and it will be, we're saved. No, it says we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're to do something so as to speak and so as to do acts, okay? Good works, and these good works God prepared beforehand. That beforehand means before the creation of the world. In eternity past, God already had these good works for you and for me laid out, okay? And then it says, so that, for the purpose of, it's a purpose clause, so that we will walk in them. It's like a tale that's told. It's like a path that's laid out before us that we have every day when we wake up good works that we're to walk in. And as many of those good works as we walk in because we're yielded to the Spirit of God and not doing our own thing, contrary to those good works, as many of those works that we do, they're racking up rewards that we will be awarded at the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ. This is really simple stuff, guys. Really simple. And when you're walking the other way because you're selfish 
or you're angry or you're mad and you don't want to obey God and you're turning your back and walking in your own way, you're saved. You're on the escalator going up, but you're walking down the escalator. You're not making the progress that you could be making if you yielded yourself to the Spirit of God. And so that is creating loss for you. You're creating loss. That's wood, stay in, uh, wood hay, and stubble that will be burnt up. So, Second Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to turn there real quickly so you can see what I'm talking about. I probably should have had you turn here first. 1 Corinthians 3, and let me begin in verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, that's believing that foundation is our belief. But verse 12 goes on. Now, if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, okay? So that's talking about those who are believers, those who have that foundation of Jesus Christ. They do something. They build upon it. Some build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Others build wood, hay, and straw. Then verse 13 tells us about the Bema Seat of Christ. Each man's work will become evident. It'll be revealed. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man. And women, you're not off the hook. That's generally speaking. Each person's work, okay? When it says man here. And verse 14 says, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So that would be those jewels, that, that gold, silver, and precious stones that aren't burnt up by the fire, but wood, hay, and straw, how's that deal with fire? Poof, it's gone. It's loss. It's loss. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though by fire. It, it, it's it's kind of like this, and I just thought of this. <laughs> I hope it works. I just, literally, I just thought of this. Okay, so everything that we buy nowadays is made where? China, okay. So go in your house and take everything out of the house that's made in China. Okay? Loss, right? You go back into your house, you own your house, but there's no longer a sofa there, there's no TV, there's no, you know, kitchen appliances, you name it, Right? Go into the clothes. No more clothes anymore, right? That's loss. That's the kind of thing that's going to happen. But you still have the house. You're still in the house, but you've suffered loss. The good thing is that we read in Revelation that Jesus will wipe away every tear. We won't remember for all eternity, but I do believe that we suffer loss, folks. And that's the motivation to serve. But it's not one of obligation or one of burdensome. It's one of joy. The Bema is a whole life review and evaluation. It's the good, and it refers to those works that are done by the power of the Holy Spirit. The bad are those things that are done that are worthless, self-serving, and not glorifying to God. Even though the Bema of Christ will be a somber experience, Paul encourages believers not to dwell on the loss, but to consider our appearance before the Lord as a joyous event. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 7 and 8, he says, For you, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm to the end, that's assurance, he'll confirm to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a joy looking for his appearing, that blessed hope. We're looking forward to that, and that's why I say the emphasis of the Bema is not on the lost. It's on the rewards. It's on the rewards. I think Paul knew that because he understood that the force of the Spirit of God in the true believer's life is a force to be reckoned with. As heavy as those urges to commit sin were before we were saved and we just followed them like dumb sheep going to the slaughter, okay? So is the power of the Spirit of God transforming us from glory to glory. I think we underestimate the power of God. And you may not do, be doing as well as you think you should be doing in your sanctification. 
Somebody I know very, very close who's not here today says she often thinks she's 20 years behind in her sanctification. God bless her. She's not. (laughs) She's growing. But sometimes we feel like that. But it's that escalator going up, right? Sometimes the process is slow, but he is transforming us from glory to glory into the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. So don't lose heart, and don't you focus on the loss, but realize that you have something to say about allowing loss to come into your life by denying the power of the Spirit of God to do those things that God has for you. Even so, the balance for the believer, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, should be to strive to avoid any sense of shame or loss. You say, what, shame or loss in heaven? Yes. Yes. That loss is not going to be a pretty thing to experience. John taught this in 1 John 2.28. He says, And now, little children, abide in him so that... Here's why you abide in him. Abiding in him means walking in, in, in sync with him, okay? Abide in him so that when he appears... We're talking about his second coming for us as believers, the rapture, if you will. We may have confidence. We may have confidence and, get this, not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Really? Yep. You know some Christians like that. I do too, right? They're not living for God. You know they're believers. Their testimony, you know that they had walked with God and that they, they have shown fruit of being regenerate, but they're no longer walking like that with him. I often think about Peter after he denied Christ, Right? And the cock crowed three times. And it says, Peter remembered Jesus' words. And he went out and wept bitterly. Was he not the Lord's? I believe he was the Lord's. I believe he denied the Lord even when he was the Lord's. But he was caught up immediately because the Spirit of God would not let him be like that. And then Jesus restored him. He restored him on that, the shore, right? When he says, if you love me, feed my sheep. But he went out and he wept bitterly. But it was for a moment. And God restored him. I think that's maybe the way the loss is going to be. We're going to experience it and it's going to be gone. But it's loss. It's loss. I don't want any of you to experience that at all. And I want you to be joyfully waiting the return of the Lord, but also to receive rewards. So what are the deeds or the works for which God will reward believers. Let me give you just a little list of them, okay? Because there's thousands of them. I'll list the addresses. Uh, I won't list, uh, I won't read these texts to you. You can just get the address. I'm going to tell you what they're about. Number one, something that you can do to gain rewards with God is when you're kind and compassionate and you show it to those who do not deserve it and can't pay you back, okay? Luke 6.35. When you're kind and compassionate to those that can't pay you back. Number two, when you are meeting the needs of the needy who are in service of the Lord. Okay, like Martin. Have him over for dinner. Cha-ching, rewards. He's in the service of the Lord. You're blessing him by having him over for dinner. You're sharing food with him. And that is in Mark 9.41. You will gain rewards for that. Number three, for care given to those who are unable to repay you, to help uh, uh, helping them. Uh, It's a blessed thing. You know, a lot of times, and depending on where you are in a social strata thing, we do things expecting that to be repaid back. We have somebody over to our house, and then we wait for the return invitation. Okay? This is talking about having somebody in your house that would never have you in their house. Okay, doing something with someone that they can't really repay you. You know, um, when, when I was growing up in the church, and maybe you guys are doing it, maybe I'm unaware of it, but every once in a while, I would hear of a brother who would slip a guy a 20. He'd shake his hand, and he'd just give him 20 bucks. And a guy would look in his hand, and there'd be a $20 bill from his handshake at church. Sometimes guys would just weep because they needed it. They needed it for bread. You know, are we doing that with each other? Well, sharing like that with people that can't repay us back, we're not even expecting to be paid back, 
we're giving to someone who may have need, that's rewarded by God. Luke 14, 12 through 14. A fourth way is for the faithful and wise use of personal finances for the kingdom of God. Now, you all, I know you know about this because we collected over $10,000 for the Taliabo Church. Incidentally, got a report, just didn't want to bring it this morning. I'll bring it next week when Martin's here. But they got all the wood cut, and there was a handful of guys, six, sitting by their motorcycles just dead. They were the last bones of the crew. There was once 20, 30 guys helping. These were the last guys that brought up the tail end and finished it off. But the wood is cut. And um, the rebar is costing more money than they thought, but our donation is going a long way to, to meet that need. And they're getting the roofing ready now. So I know you all know about that because that was a lot of money and I dropped it on you like, you know, okay, uh, there's a need here. I don't know what you guys think, but if we can make a collection, that would be great. And you did above and beyond. So that's all worthy of reward, Matthew 25, 20 through 21. Number five, for enduring personal suffering and isolation for the sake of the Lord, not because you're a mean person <laughs> or not because you're bad, but for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the gospel, you experience personal suffering and isolation. Luke six twenty two through 23. Number six, for perseverance in the face of losing personal possessions. Um, you know, there's martyrs all over the world today, and many have their bank accounts froze uh, for those things that they're doing for the Lord. Not necessarily to truckers, I'm not necessarily referring to them, but in other countries, bank accounts get frozen very easily and people are persecuted. God's people are persecuted. Hebrews 10, 34 through 36. There may come a day. There may come a day. Now I want to give you just a couple of examples of the loss of personal rewards in a very real way that uh, believers are warned against. In Matthew 6.1, this is number 7, loss may come from seeking recognition and reward from men. You, that would be loss. When you, like the Pharisees, right? Well, they weren't believers. But sometimes believers can get very proud. And when you're seeking recognition and reward from men, that would be a loss, Matthew 6.1. Sometimes loss may come from unfaithfulness in using our personal resources, just the opposite. Uh, the opportunity comes to give, and you go, no, nah, I don't think so. I'm not going to give to that project. That's your prerogative, but if you're sensing the Spirit's pressure to give, and you're kind of holding your fist back because you don't want to give, that would be lost, Matthew 25, 28 through 29. Loss may come from living spiritually unproductive lives, 1 Corinthians 3.15. Number nine. Number 10. Loss may come from a lack of obedient steadfastness. Revelation 3.11. When you're not faithful, you're not faithful. And here's scripture motivations for the believer to live a life filled with good works, with the promise of rewards. Number 11. Joyful perseverance and affliction will achieve an eternal weight of glory. This is called having an eternal perspective. I wish I could just turn a switch and get everybody's mind here who are believers to think of eternity. I mean, just stop and think about it. 80, maybe 90 years on this earth, eternity. What do you want to live for? Some people live for, you know, a big house. Or some people live for, you know, the, the amount of toys that they can have so that they can outdo somebody else. Oh, my gosh. You're talking... 80, 90 years here, if you're fortunate, and eternity over here. Wouldn't you want to rack up rewards for eternity? I do. Number 12, there's a reward in direct proportion to intentional Christian witness. When your witness is intentional, the way you live, you're watching yourself, okay? You don't buy the nicest thing that you could afford because you're careful not to be a stumbling block to others. 
You rein yourself in. You watch yourself. And in direct proportion to that intentional Christian witness, you will gain a reward. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 talks about that. 13, the sowing and reaping principle based on tireless good works is a motivation. Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Do not grow weary in doing well. For in due time, you will be rewarded. So keep it going. 80, 90 years, it's not that long. Eternity, okay? 14, and the last one. Pursuing greater heavenly treasure over lesser things on earth. The short-lived earthly treasures. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. And compare that with Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Now just to wrap up, I want to look at verse 13 in James chapter 2. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, the display of mercy shown toward another is distinctly a Christian virtue. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you cannot show mercy in a godly way if you're not a believer. It's kind of like love. Agape love. Agape love is love that doesn't and can't even expect anything in return. That's God's love. And agape love is only available to the believer, and the unbeliever doesn't even know anything about agape love. Do they love their families, unbelievers? Sure. But all love for the unregenerate is a self-centered love. All of it. It comes back to them. They're good because they want to be paid back for that. They expect to be paid back for that. And don't pay them back and you'll see how fast that love turns on you. Okay? But the believer loves without expecting to get back because it's God's love. It's agape love. And the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts so we have that capacity to show that love. So mercy is kind of like that. It's shown toward another and it's distinctly a Christian virtue. Mercy is the outward manifestation of pity and compassion in kind actions toward the misery of another person or people. It, it, it's often shown by God to those who are in distress and overwhelmingly in need, and it does not focus on what the other person deserves. That's important. That's key. It's not on whether or not they deserve it. It's focused on their need. We deserved what? Hell and only hell. And yet we gained heaven because of God's mercy on us. In 1 John three sixteen through 18, it says, We know love by this. And love is what marks us as believers. We know love by this. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That doesn't mean we're supposed to die for them. It means we lay down our lives. We deny ourselves day in and day out for the brethren here, it says. But whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Well, that's frightfully close to what James just talked about. So as one who speaks and acts, okay? John says it's in word or with tongue, but we need to do it in deed and in truth. In deed and truth. And that's found in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. In Matthew 23, through, uh, 23, 23, Jesus referred to mercy as one of the weightier matters of the law. And the term loving kindness is used throughout the Old Testament, chesed. It's a, it's a wonderful Greek or Hebrew word that define, uh, it defies interpretation, but one of its nuances, and it has many, loyalty, uh, steadfast love, um, mercy. Okay, Listen to these terms or these, these verses using loving kindness, and in your mind just put mercy in its place. In Psalm 5, 7, But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, by your abundant mercy, I will enter your house, Lord. Psalm 6, 4 says, 
Return, O Lord, and rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, because of your mercy. Save me. I don't deserve it, but by your mercy. Psalm 13, 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. I have trusted in your mercy, and my heart will rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 18, 50. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness or mercy to his anointed. And finally, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he bestows mercy and comfort on us when we suffer as believers so that we can turn around and show that same mercy and comfort to others that we see in trouble, 2 Corinthians 1.3. So how does mercy triumph over judgment? Mercy is first and foremost an attribute of God, as I said, and as such, sinful men can only show mercy towards others after they themselves have experienced it personally. And the greatest display of mercy that God can show to a sinner is to save them from their sin. Therefore, the mercy that they show to others is only a reflection of God's mercy. And it's a deeper mercy that God has shown them by forgiving them all their sins. In this way, mercy triumphs over judgment. Sin is to be judged, but Christ dying on the cross and in his mercy he forgave us our sins. Mercy triumphs over justice. That's why it's such an affront to God when we hold on to a spirit that's unforgiving of others. And I know many believers that struggle with this and have struggled with it. It's so contrary to God's character and nature, which we have the privilege as believers to reflect towards others. Ephesians 4.32 defines this so simply, but so many miss it. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God has forgiven you. Our mercy is a reflection of what he's done for us. Our forgiveness is a reflection of what he's done for us. Any good thing that we do is a reflection of the good that he's bestowed upon us. And then, wonder of wonders, he gives us rewards because we do the good things that he's enabled us to do and that we enjoy by his mercy. Go figure. I read a humorous account that shows one person that got caught in the act of judgy, being merely judgy. And I love it because I've been caught a lot of times. I've shared some of those times with you. Remember the blinker going off in front of me and being really angry with that person, thinking, come on, you numbskull, turn off your blinker, only to look down and my blinker was going off. Right? Listen to this. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to just drop. She is engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read, munched cookies, and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half, and he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve, and he's also rude why he didn't even show me any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat and then, thought her, thought, uh, and then sought her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached in her baggage, she, grasped, she gasped with surprise There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair, 
than the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. That's us, people. That's us on so many levels, and that's why I shared it with you, as hokey as it was. But it's really true. We think of ourselves so much higher than we ought. We need to humble ourselves, and we need to show mercy and thereby overcome the judgment. The act of mercy is not natural to an unsaved person because the unregenerate heart is innately self-centered, self-serving, and self-satisfying, and self-preserving. It is not interested in others, but is possessed by a singular focus on themselves. Only true believers are able to exercise God's mercy, having first experienced it themselves. And mercy does triumph over judgment. Let's pray. Father God, James and the book of James is just so wonderful. It's so practical. And Lord, we have these last few weeks just looked at it as it's been applied to our lives right where we're living. And Lord, this is your word. This is truth. There is no uh, lack here of, of, of content for us to take and to apply to our lives and use in our lives. So we pray that you would help us to do that. We pray that you would help us not to lose out and to disallow your spirit living through us, that we might more readily reflect you and thank you that you're so gracious, so marvelous, so wonderful that you actually reward us for doing so. What a great God you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.